Like, I'm really looking forward to addressing that a little bit more. Um, the importance of God speaking to us and spending some time looking at what it would mean for God to speak to us. What kind of conditions are required for God to speak to us? So uh, uh, we'll look at that. We'll return here, this, this subject, uh, in, in a few weeks. The second thing we looked at is the fact that God made a promise to Abraham, that God promised, a promise that was fulfilled in Christ, that through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and that everyone who blessed him would be blessed, and everyone who cursed him would be cursed. Let me just say really quickly, how many of you would agree that when you think about the Lord Jesus as the fulfillment of this prophecy, it makes it a little clearer to, to understand what it means, anyone who curses you will be cursed. You depend, your life depends, the outcome of your life depends on whether or not you bless the seed of Abraham, being the Lord Jesus Christ. You will bless him and be blessed, or you will curse him and be cursed, okay? And, and, and so we, we understand the promise that God gave to Abraham is being fulfilled in, in, uh, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we looked at the fact that Abraham obeyed, and that this is a faith requirement, where there's faith obedience follows. It's a, it's a necessary part of the Christian life. The requirement for a life of faith is obedience. And that's a, an absolutely true north issue for us, right? What, what is it that points my life in a proper direction? It's obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. I obey the Lord Jesus Christ. I should be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we focused on very quickly last week. This morning, I want to read Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. I want to ask you to bear with me. I'm, I'm fighting a little bit. I'm feeling it in my throat. I might start groveling here in a little bit, but just put up with me if you don't mind. Um, Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. If you would turn there, let's read together. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. Um, men, this is a great opportunity for you to have some good marriage advice and just turn and say, She had nothing on you, babe, or something like that, okay? <laughs> so this is just a good opportunity here, you know. Um, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and it will come about when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. And it came about when Abram came to Egypt, came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys, and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? so that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. 
Let me just start with a few preliminary observations. Um, uh, first of all, notice that last line. Uh, we didn't read it, but notice the last line of verse 1. In verse 1, God says to Abraham, I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to go. The last line is, to the land which I will show you. To the land which I will show you. God is specific about this. To the land which I will show you. Now, it's interesting that when you get to verse 7, a verse which, which again, we did not read. If you look at verse 7, here's what you find. And the Lord appeared to Abram, to, to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to, to him. In other words, Abraham had gotten to the land that God, that God said, I will show you. He had gotten there. He was there. Okay? I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And when Abraham gets there, you remember from last week that I'm not going to say Abram because it's just going to confuse me for the rest of the morning. I'm going to say Abraham. Okay? When, God, when Abraham gets there, God says to him, here it is. This is the land that I'm going to give to you and to your descendants. This is yours. Abraham knows in verse 7 that he has arrived at the land that God is giving to him. Now listen, when we say that, in other words, what we're saying is this. Abraham has arrived at the land that God told him to go to. Right? Get up. Go to a land that I will show you. He gets there and God says, you've arrived. This is the land that I'm going to give to you and to your descendants after you. God says to him, you've done what I told you to do. You've obeyed. Here you are. This is the land that I, want, that I, that I was indicating to you. This is the land that I told you to go to. <clears throat> it's important for us to know this, that Abraham had a way of knowing that he had arrived at the land that God told him, this is the one I want you to go to. You're here. You're here. Now, this is a little map. Can you see it at all? You probably can't read the words, but can you see it? Okay. So, um, there we go. Uh, so, this is where he starts. He start, starts in Ur, and he travels all the way up through here. Haran is up here. He comes down, 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 down. When he gets to right here, he's in this land of Canaan, right here, around Bethel. This is the spot where he is. We're told that this is the place where Abraham stops. He is, he is um, we're told in verse 6, he passes through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the yoke of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. Verse 8, he proceeds from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and he pitches his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. I mean, when we're reading this text, we're talking about Abraham and his, and his family being right here, right here. And God says to him, this is the land I told you to go to, and this land is going to be yours. This is for you and your descendants after you. One big problem, one big problem, there's a famine in the land, right? Details. Right? So Abram's here. Abraham is here. Because of the famine, he goes down into Egypt. 
That's where the account that we just read takes place, the story that we just read. And from Egypt, he leaves and he goes back to Canaan. Okay? So his journey goes like this, like this, and then like this. With, with this spot right here being the place that when he gets there first, God tells him, this is it. You've arrived. This is where I told you to go. All right? This passage is one of two times in which Abraham asks Sarah to identify herself as his sister. He does it again later on. He does it again. Um, I have introduced you all. You may have known it already, but I have introduced you to that word from my background, stunat. Okay? That would fit. I mean, tell your, tell, tell your wife, say you're my sister once. Okay, I got serious questions. Do it second time. It's just stunat, okay? It's just not, not, not brilliant, okay? Not a great idea. Anyways, it's one of twice. We're probably going to look at the second time he does it because there are some different things in that passage that we might profitably, uh, profitably learn from. But he says, he says to Sarah, we want, I want you to say you're my sister. Now, the facts of this historical event, the facts that we just read are very clearly given. We know the story, we can read the story, we know what the account is, and frankly, it's a story that raises a few questions for us, it raises some questions, but it offers us a lot of insight from which we can draw lessons to help us understand true north in the life of one of God's chosen men. So let me just go out on a limb, and how many of you would agree that True north for the life of a man is probably not something like, tell everybody she's my sister so I can save my own hide. Anybody say amen to that? Right? Men, we should probably be what? Honest. When it comes to our wives, whose safety should we prioritize? Hers, right? We should probably say, even if they kill me, I will protect you. Instead, Abraham goes true south, <laughs> says, tell everybody you're my sister so that I will be okay, so that I will be okay. You know, it's like hiding behind her in dodgeball or something like that. <laughs> you know, it's like, come on, man. Uh, anyways, so, so there's, these, there's these facts that we know. We, can, we, we know exactly what's going on in the story. Questions are raised. But there's also a lot of lessons for us to learn. Let's look at some of them. So Abraham's arrived at the land of Canaan. That was his journey. He gets there. God tells him, this is the land I want you to be in. And we're left with this big question. Really, Abraham? She's your sister? Well, technically, right? She's his half-sister. So come on, you know, you have kind of a negotiating relationship with the truth here, you know? It's kind of a... Uh, a bargaining relationship with the truth. I mean, she's, she's, she's my half-sister, so I, I can technically pull some truth out of this that says I'm not telling a technical... How many of you just step back and say, what he told Sarah to say was absolutely calculated to deceive? Amen. It was calculated to deceive for his own preservation's sake. He tells them, asks her to tell them, you're my sister. All right. So let's look at some of the lessons that we could glean from this passage. 
The first thing that we need to notice in this, and listen, there's a lot more that we could look at than I'm going to go over this morning. But I just want to say something about unclear circumstances. Something about unclear circumstances. All right? So uh, I want to be clear about what exactly Abraham is facing in this time. Let me, uh, I've already made a big deal about emphasizing this point. Let me do it one more time. The first time Abraham gets to Canaan in that Bethel area, he knows 100% for sure that he has arrived where God told him to go. He knows he's there. I have come to where God told me to go. Now, from that point on, there's all kinds of things you can wonder about. The fact that this is where God told me to go. So we, we, we have these kind of negotiating relationships, I think, with truth all the time that we have to deal with. Does that mean that this is where I have to stay? Right? I mean, am I allowed to go on vacation somewhere far away? What if there's a famine in the land and I just need to go get some food? Right? Now, now there's these questions. Because of the circumstances, there's questions that make unclear what seems to be rather clear. You've arrived where God told you to go. You have gotten to the place where God told you to go. But what happens is Abraham gets to where God has clearly told him to go, and, and now he's there, and he's a stranger in a strange land, somewhere between Bethel and Ai, and there's a famine in the land, and he's got people and animals to feed. How many of you agree it's a legitimate question to ask yourself, what do I do? Right? Now listen, here we are, 2,000, let's say somewhere roughly like 3,500 years later, we're saying to ourselves something like, well, you know, Abraham, really, no matter what the circumstances are, it seems pretty clear that you were where God told you to go. That's where he wanted you, Abraham. Don't you see that? Well, yes, I obeyed. I came to where God told me to go. But when you're living it in real time and the circumstances turn really hard against you and you say to yourself, I've obeyed, I came to where God told me to be, the question of what do I do next becomes a very reasonable question to ask. And you realize that, man, Abraham was in a place where the circumstances made everything that had been up to that point made very clear, now very unclear. What do I do now? God, I've got all these animals. God, I've got all these people to feed. God, all these people and animals have come with me on this whole journey. And we're now in this place where you have made clear to me, you told me to come to, but God, there's no food here. Food is not a negotiable in life. We have to eat to stay alive. What do I do here, God? Now, when you realize that that question presents itself, there's only so many options you have available to you if you're Abraham, okay? I think probably the options would have been something like this. We can go back to where we came from. And there would have been things that would have, that would have made that a reasonable thing to do. There's people we know there. We have established relationships there. 
uh, um, maybe the famine hasn't hit there. It would seem like going back there would be a secure thing to do, right? It's the familiar place. It's the safe place that I could go back to. So going back seems to be uh, a reasonable option, except for the fact that God had told him to leave. It was forbidden, right? Not, you're not supposed to be here. I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to go to a land that I will show you. So there's Ur as an option. Problem, it's forbidden. The second option is stay in Canaan. The problem with that option is there's a famine. We have a problem with food here. The third option is we can go to Egypt. The problem with Egypt is I'm a foreigner with a beautiful wife. I'm in danger if I go there. Ur's forbidden, Canaan's got a famine, and Egypt is dangerous. Let's just pause for a second, and let's extend Abraham some grace, okay? It's not pleasant to be in a life circumstance where you say, God, I've obeyed you, and obeying you has brought me to this place. And this place means the forbidden, famine, or danger. That's not, God, that's not the way obedience is supposed to work. Obedience is supposed to mean that when I obey you, everything goes well for me. I'm in a place where everything is what it's supposed to be for me. No, sometimes obeying God will land you squarely in the middle of uncomfortable circumstances with unclear directions where to go from here. Sometimes obeying God means that. Now, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to push on this and say there was, I believe anyways, there was, like I'm going to go like 95%, there was a right decision that Abraham was supposed to make. I think probably the thing that God would have wanted Abraham to do was to stay in the land of Canaan. This is where I told you to go. This is the land I'm giving you. I, we know explicitly that God doesn't want him in Ur, right? And when you read the rest of the story, you say to yourself, boy, it sure doesn't like, look like God wanted him settling in, Can in, in Egypt either. <laughs> because by the end of that story, the way things have worked out is Pharaoh is escorting him out of Egypt. <laughs> Right? Well, where did he go? He went back to Canaan. It's where he was supposed to be. Right? It seems to be where he was supposed to be. God, listen, what, what, is, what, is, what is easy to forget in this story is that God had given Abraham a promise. The promise was that through your seed, the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. In other words, you're going to have a child. Your line is not going to die out. And, and you would think to yourself that, listen, I, I know this is a, this is a challenge. I'm not, I, we've already given Abraham some grace and said it was a tough place to be in. But the reality is he had a promise that meant his family line would not die out. He had a promise. A guarantee of God that your line will not die out. In other words, you might be in a place of famine, I will sustain your family. 
if my promise is going to be true, somebody from your family is going to have to live. I'm going to take care of you. It was a promise of protection and sustenance. So he had this promise that should have helped to orient him correctly. God, if this is where you have me to be, you're going to take care of me here. Okay, You're going to take care of me here. Let's again remind ourselves that it's not like he was making a choice between something really bad and something really good. He was making choices between the forbidden, well, he eliminated that one, and then famine or danger. Right? It's not like you can really say, well, he had, we can understand it because Egypt was just like a cakewalk. That was going to be just living life large. No, it would solve one problem, but it would create a different problem, right? So, so you think to yourself, Abraham, you should have known. You should have known to stay in Canaan, all right? Let me just make these observations as clear as I possibly can. Sometimes circumstances make true north unclear. Sometimes they do. I would be willing to guess that in the last couple of years, some of you have been in circumstances that made it unclear what you should do. I know of some men that have had choices between doing things they didn't want to do and continuing to provide for their families. This is a difficult decision to make. It's a difficult decision to make. My job's on the line. I need to feed... In a way, you're facing famine, right? Well, you're facing famine. We get put sometimes in circumstances where the circumstances make things unclear. It can make true north seem very, very hazy. What should I do? I'm not sure what, should I, what I should do. That's one observation. The second observation is that pressure tends to cloud human judgment. We don't, we don't usually make great decisions under pressure. Okay? Um, this is one of those things I don't, don't do very often, but since there's a football game being played later on today, I will tell you that one of the things that separates the elite from the great is the ability to make the right decision under pressure. Some of us handle pressure better than others. But here's the reality. Pressure is a challenge for every human being. And enough pressure will take you beyond the ability to think clearly. Pressure clouds judgment. It's just a question of how much pressure do you need to get there. Pressure clouds judgment. The third one is this. Talked about going easy on Abraham, but how many of you have ever been between a rock and a hard place and would just say, it's a really hard place to be? Amen? All right. Can I get on a soapbox just for a minute? I'm not going to say who. I'm just saying, in some context, I heard someone say this. I might be, I want to leave, a, I want to leave a, a certain percentage that I could be wrong about what I'm going to say next. So you're going to have to figure this one out. But I have heard many Christians say, God will never give you more than you can handle. And I just don't think that is correct at all. I don't think, I, 
we way overestimate how much we can handle. I don't believe that's true in the slightest. In fact, I believe there are ways that God can only grow us by getting us beyond what we can handle. By getting us out into deep water where we really have to learn what it's like to swim when you can't touch bottom. Right? That, that the scripture that comes to mind that I use all the time is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. When, when Paul says, I, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, about what we faced when we were in Asia. We were pressed beyond strength, above measure, so that we despaired of life. In other words, I was over my head. It was more than I could humanly bear. Listen, if you want a, a quick saying that, you will, that, that, that gives you an optimistic way of looking at everything, you can, I believe, say this. God will never give me more than he can handle. And he will never give me more than he can enable me to handle. Those, I think, are both true. But he will give me more than I can handle in fact, I almost want to say, I guarantee you, somewhere along the line, he's going to give you more than you can handle. You know why? Because it just seems to be part of the life of faith that is required for all of us to get beyond a certain self-reliance in life. Where we really come to understand that it's one thing to sing it, and it's another thing to live it. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Right? That I really do need you. That that's a powerful life lesson to come to terms with. That God, I really do need you. And God, when I need you, you will not fail me. You will not fail me. That this is a truth that we need to understand. All right? So let's just say, thirdly, that I think we can all agree that this was a real test of Abraham's faith. He's obeyed God. He's come to the place. God has showed him, this is where I want you to be. And now, Abraham, you're faced with a choice. You can go back to the forbidden, you can stay in the famine, or you can go forward into danger. What are you going to do? How many of you agree? That would kind of be a definition of a test of your faith. Right? That's a test. You're being put to a test here. What is this? Let me just say something about tests of our faith, okay? few observations about the testing of our faith. The first one is, man, I am so thankful for this. The testing of our faith is not capricious. In other words, God's not toying with us. He's not like up there on a whim going, I'm just in a mood to dish out a couple of tests today, you know? Like, you know, I don't, I don't want to get... To, I don't want to be, be sacrilegious about this, but God's not looking at it, nudging you know, one of the saints of old going, I mean, it's kind of fun to see him squirm, don't you think? Let's just, let's just play. Because that was, that was, those were the Greek gods and the Roman gods who liked toying with human beings, who liked to play games with you, put them in impossible circumstances and see what they'll do. And then, you know, that was their concept of God. Our God is not that God. Listen to this. He loves us. He cares for us. He doesn't play games with our lives. 
He doesn't put us in circumstances because he likes to watch us squirm. It's not, a, it's not a sport to him the way he deals with us. That's not what God does. So please hear this. If you're in a test of your faith, you need to know that God is taking the testing of your faith seriously. He's not playing some kind of sadistic game with you. He's taking it seriously. In other words, he's looking at you and he's going, this is the child that I love. His heart is moved by the fact that the trial you're going through is hard for you. He cares about the fact that it's deeply uncomfortable for you. He's not just up there smiling, playing little games. He cares about this, okay? The second thing we need to know about the trial in our faith is that it's not really revealing anything to him about us. He already knows us. Now, there are some scriptures in which it's described this way, but we have to understand it's, it's putting things in human terms so that we can get it, okay? It's, it's not really revealing things to us. In other words, listen, God knew where Abraham was weak and where Abraham was strong. God didn't need him to be in these circumstances for God to say, Oh, now I get you, Abraham. Now I understand what makes you tick. It, God wasn't going to learn anything about Abraham through this. God knows. God knows. He knows all about Abraham. Our tests are not revealing anything to him about us. That's not what they're doing. I will tell you this, though. The tests that we go through re reveal a lot about us to us. It does do that a lot, right? And so there's a sense in which this relationship we have between us and God, you put us through a good test, oh, it does reveal things. Oh, it does reveal things. It makes some things clear, usually things we don't want, don't want to see. right? But it puts us in a place of having to, to re-understand our relationship with God based upon the things that we we begin to see he needs to do in us. He needs to change something in us. He needs to transform some area of us. And, it, and it's going to readjust the way we know him and the way we relate to him. So there is an aspect of revelation in these times of testing. We need to also know that he doesn't just reveal to us so that we go, okay, now I know this about myself. You ever heard somebody say, well, that's just the way I am. You can take it or leave it. You know, my answer to them is, my answer would be sometimes something like this. That may be just the way you are, but all of us are hoping that it changes over time. <laughs> right? I have no doubt my wife has felt that way about me more than once. That may be the way you are, but I'm kind of hoping that you don't die that way. I'm hoping that somewhere along the line, you get past that, <laughs> okay? Why? Because God's tests are not just informational, they're developmental. When we go through a test, he intends to do something in us. He intends to accomplish something in us. In other words, he's not just revealing ourselves, uh, us to ourselves so that we can go, well, that's the way I am. Eh. He's going, that's the way you are. This is what I want you to be. I want you to come to a new place. 
I want you to grow beyond that. I want to accomplish something. I want to transform you. I want to make you into the image of you. Listen, that the trying of your faith works patience so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, God is saying, these trials are there for something to be accomplished in you. Right? I want to accomplish something in you. The fifth thing is, boy, I'm so thankful for this. I'm thankful that God is actively at work and his work is effective in our lives even when we go astray. How many of you would agree that if Abraham had stayed and faced the famine, there would have been plenty of trial of his faith that God would have developed him into the man he wanted him to be? Right? God would have done what he needed to do in Abraham had Abraham stayed in Canaan. But you know what I'm so thankful for? I'm so thankful that when we mess up and we go to Egypt instead of staying where we're supposed to stay, God doesn't go, well, that's it. I'm kind of done with you till you get back to Canaan. Oh, you're going to go to Egypt? I'll teach you something there. Right? I'll be at work in your life there. I will do something in your life there. That is, God works within us even when our choices are not ideal. Now, that's a double-edged coin right there, right? So I don't want you to go, well, then I don't, my choices don't matter. I'll make bad choices and God will teach me anyways. I, I, I want you to know there are better ways to learn than making bad choices all the time. Okay? The point of it is this. Let's at least credit Abraham with sincerity. He was between a rock and a hard place. He might not have made a good choice, but it was an honest bad choice. It was an honest bad choice. This is one of the things that I want in my life. Lord, when I go astray, I want to go astray honestly. Right? As I go astray saying, Lord, I've done my best to know what I should do and to please you, and I'm astray because I'm a, I'm a stunad. And I don't see everything clearly. Not because I'm a rebel who wants to go into sin. Okay? In other words, please hear this. This is not an excuse for persisting in sin in your life. If it's wrong, get out. Don't play games with God. Don't presume upon His grace. Yes, He will be at work with you. But when it's wrong, it's wrong. Get out. Get out. An honest, an honest going astray is different from a deliberate, disobedient, rebellious going astray. Good news, God will work in both. God will work in both, but one should not be. One should not be. Let him work in his way the way he would like to work in your way. It's always better, it's always easier, no matter how hard it seems. Okay? So there's this. There's this matter of unclear circumstances. How do we understand these unclear circumstances? The second thing we need to notice is inner confusion. Inner confusion. Listen, how many of you have enough inner confusion in your life without, without having to worry about too many circumstances? You just have things, there are things in you that because of who you are, you don't see everything clearly. Can I, can I just do this really quickly? Can we have a moment of confession? Is it okay? I'm not going to ask you about sins. I'm just going to ask you about tendencies. Okay? How many, of you, how many of you have a natural inclination toward pessimism? 
like you, you, you're, you're kind of melancholy, you have a kind of a depressive bend to your personality. Can I ask how many of you would, would say that that's, that comes naturally to you somewhat? How many of you know that the fact that that is there will affect the way you see everything around you? It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. Just because that's in you, it will make some things unclear. How many of you have some, some challenges with something like anxiety? Yes? Okay, thank you. Um, how many of you have some challenges with fear? How many have some things that you have some fears over? Will that affect the way you see things regardless of what the circumstance? There are fears that are, because they are present, they affect the way you view the world. You view the world that way, okay? I could go on and just keep going down the list. By the way, sometimes optimism just puts you in a different kind of danger. I have a, I have a uh, he wasn't my uncle, I called him my uncle, he was my dad's cousin. He just knew, he 100% knew that he was gonna hit it big. He, knew, he was always, when you talk to him, he was always just one week away from hitting it really big. I've got a contract that when it goes through next week, is gonna be the, is gonna, uh, it, it's gonna be big. It's gonna be big. The guy could not manage money for anything. He was constantly going to family members, trying to borrow 25,000, 50,000, because this optimistic view he had that he was always one step from hitting made him make bad decisions. Every time he turned around, he made another bad decision. But he knew the next one was going to be the big one. Insane optimism, right? We have these things inside of us, an inner confusion that is present regardless of the circumstance. I don't know. It seems to me like Abraham may have had some fear issues. Seems like it anyways, right? To the point where he's willing to put his wife at risk to save himself. I mean, that's a fear, right? So let's just say that some of it's excusable. I mean, anybody really want to go through a good old-fashioned famine? I'm not really excited about that possibility. That's not what I want to go through, right? That's, it's not high on my list of experience. But the famine drives him to Egypt. There's a fear that drives him to Egypt. In other words, he's at the place where he knows God's, God wants him to be, but the circumstances maybe play on a natural fear that's there, and so he makes a decision that's not the best decision, right? Well, then he gets there, and I, I put this in the category of inexcusable. I, there's just not really a good excuse for what he does to his wife. There's really not a good excuse there. I'm so afraid that I'll die that I will, I will hide behind you, Sarah, and put you at risk to save my life. It's, not, it's just not right. It's not excusable, right? That's not the right way for Abraham to go. This was... This was, this was inexcusable. Oh, by the way, let me go back to the excusable one for a minute. I just want to point out that in Hebrews 11, 15, and 16, God praises him for not going back to Ur. He says Abraham was a man of faith that when he had opportunity, he did not go back. So let's at least give him a pat on the back and say, boy," 
right? At least he didn't go back to the place where he was most familiar with, that he would have felt somewhat secure, right? He didn't do that. But he had an excusable fear, and then he had an, inexcus an, an inexcusable fear, one that drove him to put his wife in a place of danger rather than himself, all right? So let's, let's, let's take this and let's, let's, let's look a couple more steps down the road. The next thing we see is this, that surface sins are not always the real issue. They're not always the real issue. In other words, let me, let me give you an example. Was Abraham's big problem that he was a liar? No. He told a half-truth because he got scared enough to compromise his truthfulness. His problem wasn't that he was a compulsive liar. His problem was he was afraid. He was afraid. I think we'd all agree that the lie wasn't right, that to tell a half-truth calculated to deceive was not right for him, but that was just the symptom of a deeper problem. If you'd have been counseling Abraham, silly, right? He's a patriarch. But if you'd have been giving counsel to Abraham, you would have been misguided to focus on his need for truthfulness, and you'd put your finger on the right place if you'd have said, no, you only did that because of this, this in your life. Abraham, you were so afraid that you put your, life, your, your wife at risk, and you told a lie, and you lied. The problem was something deeper than what you could see on the surface. This is often the truth for us. It's often the reality for us. We do things, we do things that are wrong, but we don't always do them for the most obvious reason. Sometimes there's other stuff going on beneath the surface. And please hear this. This is the place where the test of our faith really becomes so vital that you and I would allow God to deal with those deep places in our lives where the root of the problem really lies, right? Where the root of the problem really is. This is one of the reasons why we must be tested. Why? Because we have soul issues. They are painfully faced, and they, are, they, they either have to be painfully faced and handled, or else they're going to hamper our future, and they're going to hurt other people. So God wants to deal with them. So God wants to deal with them. God wants to, wants to help us face these issues in, a, in, our, in ourselves. It's one reason why we must be tested. You don't deal with the fear in your life. You don't deal with whatever it is in your life. Please hear this. It's going to hinder your future. And it's going to come back in the form of hurting people around you. It just will. So we need the courage to deal with the things that we don't really want to deal with. Inner confusion. So let me close with what I'm going to call divine conclusions. Divine conclusions. By conclusions, I mean how God sees things, how he evaluates us, and how he decides things and acts correctly. Okay? Divine conclusions. First of all, let's recognize that Abraham was a kind of, his life was a mixed bag of true north. God told him to leave. He did it. He got to the land God told him to, get, to come to. He could have gone back. He didn't do it. Because God had told him, this is where I want you to be. 
right? So let's give him some props. He did some things right. He was, he was properly oriented. I think what we see there is Abraham's heart was in the right place. He really did want to obey God. He wanted to obey God, right? He made a bad decision, a bad true north decision when he turned and went straight south <laughs> because that's where Egypt was from Canaan, straight south, okay? So he made a bad decision. It's a mixed bag. Can I just say this? True north for most of our lives is a pretty mixed bag. I don't know of anybody's life that's straight as an arrow. We are all meandering. Hopefully we're meandering in a direction that leads us north, <laughs> right? Hopefully we are. But we're a mixed bag when it comes to, to true north. So that's Abraham. There's a lesson in that. We want to be true north. We're not always true north. All of our lives are a mixed bag. The closer we get to true north, how many just say, the closer I can get to true north, that's where I want to be because that's the best life I could live. Amen? That's where I want to be. Okay? So Abraham speaks to us that way. Pharaoh's an interesting case. We're, we're talking about how God deals with people. How God interacts with people. Pharaoh is a fascinating case because Pharaoh treats Abraham well. He doesn't do anything that culturally a man in his position would not be well within his rights to do. There's a beautiful woman. I would like her to be my wife. I'll take her into my harem. Right? He does this. He does not violate her. He takes her into his home. He does nothing. There was a prescription for how long she had to go through a ceremony before she was legal to him. He honors that. He doesn't do anything to her immediately. He doesn't violate Sarah in any way. He treats her rather honorably. And yet God starts in on him. <laughs> and, God, and God begins to deal with him and to chasten him. Right? Verse 16, Pharaoh treats Abraham well for her sake, gives him sheep, oxen, donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord strikes Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah. Strikes his house with plagues. Now, I don't know what to say about that for certain. The commentators have long pondered about this. And as far as I saw, there's really only one suggestion, at least the commentators that I consulted, there was one suggestion that they made. And, and the one suggestion that they made is there must have been some fault in Pharaoh that we're not aware of that God knew was punishable. That's their conclusion. I'm going to tell you, I think there was another one. I have to be honest about it because there's not another commentator to back me up on this, okay? Now, there might be one. I just didn't find him, okay? But I think this is worth considering. Maybe it's not that there was a real fault in Pharaoh, but maybe this is a possibility. Maybe sometimes people need help to do the right thing. Pharaoh was a powerful man. Pharaoh was a powerful man. Pharaoh's in a position where he can do whatever he wants to do. To say, hey, Pharaoh, you should let Sarah go. Well, I hold all the cards. Why should I let, Pharaoh, why should I let Sarah go? I'm under no obligation to let Sarah go. 
There's nothing that says I have to let Sarah go. I mean, the, the point would be something like this. The hearts of kings are in the hands of the Lord. He turns them wherever he wills. It's just a question of how much pressure does he have to exert to get that king's heart to turn. So in this case, God wants Sarah to be set free from Pharaoh's household. Pharaoh is who he is, and God says, I'm going to motivate him. I'm going to motivate him. I'll motivate him by giving him a good old-fashioned plague that will give him a good reason to let Sarah go. He's a powerful man. Please hear this. Sometimes powerful men need good reasons to give up what they have the right to do. What they have the right to do. I grew up in an environment where I heard often because I'm the man and I said so, that's why. And I'll just tell you that sometimes God has to use plagues to teach men their place, powerful men, so that they'll do the right thing, lay down their lives for someone else, right? So God acts, I think maybe this is the case. Maybe there wasn't like a big fault. Maybe it was rather something like, this is a powerful man and he needs some help to do the right thing. I'll give him the help he needs. Could I also just say very quickly that it is interesting to note in the text that Pharaoh rebukes Abraham. Why did you do this to me? Why did you say that she's my sister? She's your sister. Why did you tell that lie? My family's gone through plagues because of you. Why did you do that and, and, and give... And, and, Allow me to take your wife, do something I shouldn't do. Well, the answer is because I was afraid that if I told you she was my wife, you'd take her anyways and kill me, right? But Pharaoh's implying something like, if you had told me who she was, I wouldn't have done the wrong thing and, and had to go through these plagues. Can I tell you this? Not always does the church re re deserve the rebukes we receive, but sometimes... Sometimes the world rebukes God's people for things that should be rebuked. That should be rebuked. You know, how many of you have heard, I don't want to go to church because it's full of hypocrites. And that can just be a big excuse for not turning toward the Lord. But please hear this. How many of you would agree that hypocrisy is, a, is an absolute evil and when the world sees it, it has, it's, it's right for the world to rebuke it. Call us out. There are things that should not be among the people of God. Sometimes the world actually does identify things in the church that the church should actually sit up, pay attention to, and then repent of. Abraham was wrong for what he did, and Pharaoh rightly rebuked him. So that's That's Pharaoh. Abraham, listen to this. One of the things that's fascinating about this story is that Abraham does wrong, yet he walks out of the situation richer with his wife unviolated. <laughs> it's kind of like something like this. God looks at him and goes, man, did you make the wrong decision? But your heart was in the right place. I'll teach you a lesson and I'll bless you while I do it. <laughs> the point would be something like this. You know what? You can't always tell the rightness of what you did by the outcomes of what happened. He got richer 
But how many of you agree what he did wasn't right? You know what that means? It just means that God is so much better to us than we deserve. <laughs> He's just so much better to us than we deserve. Right? Abraham comes out of it enriched, despite the fact that he did the wrong thing. It's an important point to remember. The outcomes don't always accurately reveal whether it was righteous or wrong what we did. Please hear this. Don't ever forget this. Sometimes doing the right thing will put you in a tough spot, and you will not know that what you did was right if you look at the circumstances and say, well, the circumstances mean I sh if I did right, I should always come out of it good. No. Sometimes doing it's right will put you in tough circumstances. And sometimes, even when you've done what's wrong, you come out of it smelling like a rose. You can't always tell. This is a challenging thing for us. It's a challenging thing for us. All right? The last thing is this. I just want to close saying these three things about God. In this story, these three things about God become clear. The first one is that he views us generously. In other words, in Hebrews 11, God says nothing about Abraham going to Egypt. He only says Abraham did right by not going back to Ur. Isn't that nice of him? You know what? If we could all learn to talk generously about each other, because we think generously of each other, that would be a nice thing. Amen? The world would be a better place. The church would be a better place. Our relationships would be healthier for it. Now, there are times when God calls people out. I understand that. But just lay within the context of the story. You know, as a general rule, it, there might be times when something needs to be called out. But as a general rule, how many of you remember your parents telling you growing up, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Why do we get so mature that we forget simple things? We grow up, and somehow because we grow up, we would still want our children to abide by that, but I have so much discernment that when, when I say something negative about someone, right? Hey, just think nice. Think positive. Think good thoughts about people, right? God does about Abraham here. He focuses on the good of the choice that Abraham made. I'm thankful that while God knows our weaknesses, he views us generously. Can we do the same for each other? The second thing about God is, this is so, so crazily, I mean, like, I just want to say it the way it is, and I'm afraid that we can just make it an excuse for sin. But listen to this. Sin doesn't repel God's grace. Sin invites God's grace. This is just true. It doesn't justify the sin, but, I need you, but we need to know this. Grace is for sin. Now, Paul addresses the issue that, that that's not an excuse that we should sin more so that grace may abound. But what it means is this. Listen, sin is not the last word in your life. Grace is the last word in your life. Grace speaks the final word over your life so that if you sin, you know that you can confess. And if you confess your sin, he will always be faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Always. Always. That grace has the final word over our life. As a matter of fact, you could say that, that 
that grace is magnetically attracted to sin. Now, the repentance part is important. But you need to know this. You need to know that when you have run away to a far country and you have squandered your father's inheritance, your father's standing at the door looking for you to come home. Amen? He's out there, the shepherd is out there seeking the the lost sheep. And the woman is sweeping the house trying to find the lost coin. In other words, God is at work by His grace drawing you in your sin back to Himself. Grace is magnetically pulling you in your sin back to God. Right? That this is a truth that we need to see. That that sin invites, not repels God's grace. God's grace in Abraham's life was great. It was great, despite the fact that he made a wrong choice. The last thing to notice is that while God chastens, he also gives us better than we deserve. He always gives us better than we deserve. I think of Romans 2.4 where we're told that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. In other words, even when he's chastening us, what he's doing is calling us back to true north for our own good. He's calling us back to true north for our own good. And I'm just going to tell you this. While I have experienced God's chastening in my life, I can tell you that one of my favorite passages in Scripture is Psalm 103. Because I look up and I say, you have not dealt with me according to my sins. You have not rewarded me according to my iniquities. Oh, how great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Amen? God, somehow in your great heart, you chose to look down upon us and say, I'm going to be better to them than they deserve. Oh, they wander so much. Their lives are a mixed bag of true north. But I love them. And I'm going to set my affection upon them. And I'm going to be kind to them. And I'm going to give them generously better than they deserve. So Abraham walks out of a big mistake rich. (laughs) You should say, God, your goodness is part of the whole equation of repentance that leads us to repentance. Amen? He's just good. He's good. Can I close by asking you this? If you would bow your heads. I want to ask you two questions to ponder before we close in prayer. Two questions to ponder. What are the inner issues of your life that you need to bring before God? We talked about fear for Abraham. What inner issue are you aware of that you need to bring before God today? Is there one? In other words, in the place where God has you now, what has he revealed to you about you that he would want you to deal with? Let me take one more second on this one just to ask you for a second. I just came out of a marriage conference, so this is kind of on my mind right now. My wife and I went to the first couple days of a weekend to remember. Let me just say this right now. If in your life right now you could take your eyes off the person next to you and have nothing to say to them, 
and just say, God, what do you want to speak to me in my life today? What do I need to deal with? And not try to fix anybody around me, but just say, Holy Spirit, what do you want to fix in me? What inner issue right now do I need to let you deal with in me? Inner issues, number one. Can I ask you, the second, the second question would be this. Having seen how generously God forgives us and deals with us in his grace, who do you need to turn that grace toward? Is there someone that you need to forgive generously? They don't deserve it. We know that. That's an established fact. That's what grace is for. Grace, by definition, is the undeserved. Who do you need to forgive? Listen to this. I want you to hear this because this is true. This is just true. Forgiving someone sets a prisoner free. And when you wake up, you realize that the prisoner that got set free was you, the one who did the forgiving. What do you need to forgive? Listen, God has generously, like he did with Abraham, he has generously forgiven you, magnetically pulled you back to himself by grace. Who do you need to forgive generously? Now, I'm not going to pretend like that's easy. For some of us, there is a wrestling match going on, and it's a hard one right now. Because, Lord, I really don't feel like it. Who do you need to forgive? The way God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Lord, we close in this moment inviting your presence into the hard places of our lives. Lord, the places where, where we're tender, sensitive, we don't want to be touched. Lord, I... Not all of them are necessarily sinful... Some of it are just the, the, the natural parts of that brokenness of who we are. But we need to invite you into those places so that you can deal with them and, and heal them. So, Lord, I pray that whatever it would be, if it's fear like Abraham or some other issue that you would put your finger on in our lives, I pray that we would, rather than hiding from you, that we would run to you and invite your presence to deal with us. Search me, O God. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And then I just want to thank you that in your mercy and in your grace, you're willing to lead me in the way everlasting. So, so turn us from those places, those inner places in our lives that need to be dealt with. And then, Lord, if there's someone in here that is has a face that's in front of them right now. They close their eyes. They know when, as soon as the word forgiveness is mentioned, there's a face. And Lord, everything in them is in a, is in a war because that face represents a lot of hurt and a lot of ugly. Lord, I pray that you would give the grace to forgive.
as we have been forgiven. And I pray that in that forgiveness, there would come a healing balm, Lord, an oil that would soothe the soul, that would restore our souls, that would refresh us, that would allow us to let go. Lord, I pray that you would be gracious to us and give us the strength to forgive that might be more than we have in us right now. Help us, I pray. Lord, if, uh, I, if, there's, if there's someone that needs to forgive us, I just think to pray right now that you would give us the grace to confess and make it easy for that person to forgive us. The grace of I'm sorry, I was wrong, so that we can be forgiven. Give us your grace to do that as well. Father, be present in our lives. We invite you, Lord, take us true north, lead us in the way that we should go. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hey, thanks for being here and for taking that, that uh, in-depth look at this part of Abraham's life. Lord bless you all. May he lead you true north this week, even if it's painful. God bless you all.